recording from the BC Humanist Association's August 13th online event, Evidence in Action, How Governments Find and Use Science in Policymaking. Humanism is a progressive worldview that, without supernaturalism, affirms our ability and responsibility to lead meaningful, ethical lives capable of adding to the greater good of humanity. To learn more about humanism and to support our work, visit bchumanists.ca. Make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and to subscribe to this podcast. All right. Um, so probably some more people will come in in the next couple of minutes, but thanks so much everyone for joining us. Um, I'm Emily Fagan and I'm the marketing coordinator for the BC Humanist Association. I'm just going to say a quick couple of words before turning it over to our speaker for tonight. Um, so before we begin, I want to acknowledge that I live and work on the ancestral and unceded homelands of the Songhees, Esquimalt, and Wissanic peoples whose historical relationships with the land continue to this day. I'm grateful for this opportunity to be on this territory, although I was not invited to do so. Tonight, our speaker, uh, Kim, is joining us tonight from the unceded territory of the St. Lawrence Iroquois. Uh, I'm very sorry for how I'm going to pronounce this. Uh, Ashenabi, um, Huron Wendat, and uh, Algonquin people. A couple of quick housekeeping notes. Um, given the turnout tonight, I've muted everyone on Zoom to prevent any inadvertent interruptions. During the Q&A at the end of tonight's event, feel free to use the chat function or the raise hand function uh, to ask questions, but obviously be respectful of one another and our speaker. We're recording this talk and it will be released on our YouTube channel and podcast later uh, if you know anyone who missed the live event. Um, tonight's talk is entitled Evidence in Action, How Governments Find and Use Science in Policymaking. Um, the BCHA is a charitable organization and is able to do its work through the generosity of our members. We are currently in the midst of our summer fund drive, which is important for, for allowing us to fund more projects for the community, including a fall speaker series. If you enjoy tonight's event and want to see more programming continue through the fall, consider making a donation at bchumanist.ca slash summer 2020. Our next special virtual event, Conversion Therapy in Canada, a panel with Dr. Christopher Wells and Matt Ashcroft, is coming up on August 27th. Uh, keep an eye on our newsletter and social media for more information on how to RSVP coming soon. Prior to her time at, at Evidence in Democracy, our speaker, Kimberly Gerling, received her PhD in neuroscience from the University of British Columbia. She's worked closely with the government policy through her time as a Canadian Science Policy Fellow and as a Science Policy Analyst in two departments of the federal government. Throughout her time as a scientist, Gerling has participated in several initiatives involving global and public health, harm reduction, and drug policy. So we'll be leaving some time at the end for questions, but for now, Kim, I'll let you take it away. Um, um, thanks so much for having me. It's, uh, it's really nice to be giving a talk back to uh, BC, where I, I live for most of my life, and um, I'm really happy to be here. I think the Humanist Association is really cool. Um, so I, today we'll be talking about um, our work at Evidence for Democracy. So I'll, I'll give you a little bit of an introduction for me and then talk a bit about us. But I'm mostly gonna be sharing some of our most recent research looking at how governments actually find and use science and evidence um, and where those gaps are and what we can do as members of the public and those invested in science um, to sort of help get science into our policymaking processes. Um, so, 
to tell you a little bit about me, I mean, Emily gave me a, an introduction, but I'm a scientist by training, but I've always been really interested in the intersection of science and policy. So during my PhD, I got really interested in drug policy and in harm reduction, and I wanted to kind of connect that up to policymaking. So I actually came to Ottawa, where I live now, through a fellowship called the Canadian Science Policy Fellowship that matches up PhD scientists with departments in the federal government. And um, we work on sort of high level science policy issues. Um, I worked in the government for a couple of years. And then for the last two years, I've been working with evidence for democracy. So many of you might not know who we are. So um, to tell you a little bit about who we are, um, I'm the interim executive director. We are a nonprofit that's based here in Ottawa. And our mandate is to promote the transparent use of evidence in government decision-making. Um, and we do this through kind of a number of different kinds of initiatives. So we do issue-based based campaigns. So we help sort of advocate for the use of science and evidence. So some of the issues we've worked on include things like promoting um, the science advice in government. Uh, we've worked on issues around climate science and um, climate change. We've worked on things like reinstating the long-form census, scientific integrity policies in the government. So we do government relations and we sort of advocate for the use of science in government. We also do training and education for members of the public, as well as scientists and experts who are interested in bridging the gap between science and evidence in labs and, and in universities and our policymakers. And then we also do original research to help us better understand how evidence-based policy, evidence policy works and how we can do better. So um, we have a, a wide range of, of work that we do. And although we are based in Ottawa, we are a Canada-wide organization. So, oops. Um, so why should we care about evidence-informed policy? Like, why do we do what we do? So science and evidence obviously have a huge impact in a whole lot of, of aspects of our life. Helps inform, you know, better policies, helps us make better decisions about things like, you know, the environment, helps us develop new technologies and new solutions to big challenges, helps instill trust in our institutions. And obviously with COVID-19, it's been more obvious now than ever how important it is that we have strong relationships between those who are creating science, you know, evidence creators, and actually getting science and evidence into the hands of our decision makers and the public. And I think when a lot of us think about science policy, we think of it as this kind of linear process, like I've outlined here, where scientists and evidence creators create science, then they feed that to decision makers through science communication or through publishing in you know, peer-reviewed journals. And then those decision makers use that science in order to make their policies. And as long as we have strong, strong scientists and strong um, publications, then we're gonna have strong policy. But in reality, that's not the case. And actually evidence-based decision-making is a lot more complicated than that. So what we try and do at Evidence for Democracy is both equip our public um, with the tools that they need to be advocates for science, as well as our scientists with the tools they need to bring that science into the hands of decision makers. And then we also work with governments to sort of help understand where the barriers that they have might be with respect to evidence-based policy and also help them find and use the evidence that they need. So today what I'm gonna talk about is a little bit of our recent research trying to better understand what evidence-informed decision-making actually looks like at two different levels of government. So first I'm gonna talk about a study that we did last year um, we published in November, um, looking at members of parliament based on interviews with MPs of how they actually find and use evidence and what they feel the role of science and research is um, in their own work. And then I'm gonna switch over to some research that we actually just published about a month ago um, based on the BC Public Service, looking at um, a survey of scientists who are actually working in the public service and understanding where the challenges that they have um, lie with respect to evidence-based decision-making. 
And then after that, I'll open it up to questions and we can talk about um, your experiences. And I hope throughout this, I'm going to be equipping you with the tools that you might need to sort of help advocate for science in your own lives as well. So starting with the federal side, um, I don't know how, how much you know this, but in the last couple of years, Canada's government has actually shown a real interest in evidence-informed decision-making. We've seen this through implementation of a lot of new policies and programs to support science. So there's been lots of investments in fundamental research. Um, in 2017, we implemented a chief science advisor in the government, as well as departmental science advisors. Um, the government now has new policies for things like scientific integrity, allowing scientists to be unmuzzled and speak about their work, something that we were actually quite involved in. We have a brand new roadmap for open science, as well as pretty explicit language in the mandate letters of a lot of the ministers around using evidence and finding evidence, which is fantastic. And it's really great to see the government, you know, showing an interest in evidence-based decision-making. But what does that actually mean? And so what we wanted to address in this study was to actually understand how MPs actually find evidence. So what do they consider as evidence? Where are they looking when they need information? And, and where are the barriers to actually using that evidence in government decisions? So the report, like I mentioned, we published this work in November. Um, I've linked it here at the bottom if you um, want to take a look at it. I can also share it around after the talk and pop it in the chat. It's publicly available. Um, the report called Evidence in Action was the, the result of this study. And what we did um, is we did a series of interviews with Canadian members of parliament as well as their staff. Um, so these were fairly in-depth interviews. They were 30 to 45 minutes, which was really fantastic to get that kind of one-on-one -on -one time with members of parliament. And we asked them questions about where they find information when they need to inform their work, um, what makes the information valuable to them. So what, what, is, what makes information more likely to be used in their decisions? We asked them about the role of science and the role of research. So what do they consider research? How important is research in their work? And then we also asked them about some of the challenges to actually getting evidence into their, um, into their processes. And then we also asked them about solutions. So, you know, how could we be doing better as those who have a good connection to the science and research community? Um, and although it was a small sample, we, we only did 17 interviews. We had representation from multiple parties, um, cross-provincial representation, as well as genders, as well as um, MPs who worked on a large variety of portfolios. So it really wasn't just MPs who were interested in science, it was MPs across a huge diversity of portfolios. Um, and really what we were trying to do was sort of understand where those gaps were so that we could, you know, really cater our work to support them. So first we asked about where MPs get information. So maybe not surprisingly, we saw that there was a huge range of sources. And this is a terrible graph, but I'll walk you through a little bit of some of the core sources. But I just wanted to show you that there's really not a general process that you know MPs go to when they need information. There was a tons and tons of different ranges. By far, the most common was we saw that MPs really like the Library of Parliament, which is something that I didn't actually know a lot about before I went into the work, but the Library of Parliament is a service that's provided to members of Parliament to um, give them access to information that they might request. So sometimes this can be a really in-depth analysis on a particular topic. Sometimes it's, you know, a set of sources that helps them inform their work. Sometimes it's actually, you know, just a really brief summary, but it also can provide them with context. So, you know, what is the policy context? They can ask really specific questions and get really specific answers, as well as the library is, is mandated to be completely nonpartisan and to show their sources. So it's maybe not surprising that MPs really preferred this. 94% of the MPs we talked to said, I really like the library for information. Beyond that, there was a huge variety of sources. So a lot of MPs said, well, I like to go to the news for information. A lot of them said, 
you know, well, I rely on places like the government. So I might call up another, you know, a department. So someone from Fisheries and Oceans. I might look at a government report, something like an Auditor General report or, um, you know, a, a formal panel that the government put together and access that. Um, external organizations were really common. 88% um, of MPs said that they'll, they might get information from lobby groups, that they might get information from, you know, nonprofits or from um, industry. So maybe not surprising. 66% said, sometimes I just need to Google stuff. Um, so it really shows you that MPs are getting their information from a huge range of sources. There's no sort of common thread. A lot of them also said they really preferred to talk directly to people. So, you know, either that meant, you know, I heard from this a constituent, they, they came to my office and they said, I really, you know, care about this thing. Um, their peers, as well as, you know, actually contacting trusted experts um, to help them gather information as well. So with all of these different sources, we were like, okay, well, how do you find what's the most valuable? You know, how do you know what's the most important information? What, what is the characteristic that makes a piece of information more likely to be used in your decision? And those two most characteristics that we found were, is that information credible? Um, and is it relevant to my work? So maybe this, this is not surprising, but it also helps sort of explain why the Library of Parliament was so valuable because it was both, you know, they knew that it was sourced from a good source as well as it could be really, really niche in terms of what they were looking for. Um, but when we sort of dug a little bit deeper, one of the challenges that came out of this is that credibility was something that really varied when we asked MPs to, de to define it. So I, I asked them, like, you know, what do you consider to be a credible source? Um, and how MPs validated that was really different. So sometimes MPs said, well, okay, like I am a person who has a, a specific background in this topic or, you know, in research. And so I feel comfortable that I can sort of look at a source and know if it's a good source of information just based on my own training. Um, for some MPs, they said, well, I have folks that I rely on to help me evaluate that information. So maybe that means that I call up the scientists that I know to help me evaluate whether this is like good science or not. Um, but sometimes it was like, well, my daughter has an education in this field, so sometimes I rely on them. Um, or, well, yeah, like my, my sort of trusted circle. So this can be really great, but this is obviously can be also be quite challenging as well, depending on who the inner circle of a member of parliament is. Um, also, we saw a lot of variability in terms of specific industries or organizations or institutions that MPs considered to be credible. So for example, some MPs said, well, I, you know, know that this is a really valid piece of information because it's coming from a university. Whereas other MPs said, well, I trust this institution specifically. But then we also had MPs say, well, I would never trust that institution or that organization because I think that the work that they do is really valid, really biased. So you can see where things can sometimes sort of break down in terms of trust. Um, so we were at this point sort of asking more about information broadly, but we wanted to know, you know, us working specifically on science, what's the role of research and research-based evidence? And so what we found, which was good, is that MP said, well, of course I value research, you know, research makes my policy stronger. It helps make sure that I'm, you know, right. Um, when I have like really good statistics or really good evidence, I can build better arguments. And a lot of MPs told us, like, of course, I want to be evidence-based because, you know, I owe it to my constituents to be using the best available evidence, which is really great to hear. But, I mean, as you can expect, we also found some challenges. So MPs, for one, didn't have a unified view of what research even meant. So for some MPs, they said, well, I think that it's research if it comes from a source that I trust. So, 
um, you know, if it's coming from the news, I know that it's probably well researched. Sometimes he said, well, I only consider it research if it's coming from a research institution like a laboratory. It's only research if it's like hard science. Um, a lot of MPs talked about research being in the parliamentary committees. So, well, if I have, you know, a, a committee where we're working on a particular bill, we're doing a lot of research. So I would say that that's evidence-based decision-making um, or the library parliament or something else. So again, we're sort of getting this real variety in terms of what a members of parliament even consider to be evidence in terms of their decision-making. Um, and the problem, so, so we, we really dug into what MPs considered to be barriers to evidence-based policies. So even though MPs said, well, of course, I want to use the best available evidence, when we asked them to describe some of the challenges, a lot of them said, well, there's actually a lot of challenges that I find when, when I need to sort of get that evidence into my policymaking. So some of those were relating to just the challenge of the MP's job. So almost every MP we talked to said, I'm just overloaded with information, like the amount of information that comes across my desk from, you know, bills I need to read to emails from my constituents to reports that I'm working on to stuff that like my, my team needs me to review. I just don't have the time to read and review everything. So how am I supposed to, you know, figure out whether this is like good science or do a bunch of research if I don't even have the time to like read a whole report. Um, a lot of them also said, well, you know, I don't even know, like I can't be an expert in everything. So how am I supposed to, to know if this is the best available evidence or if it's not? Um, Relating to that, a lot of MPs said, well, I would love, of course, to talk to an expert. So we actually heard from a lot of MPs that they preferred to sort of speak directly to someone who could help them validate information. But a lot of them said, but I don't even know where to go to find them. So while some MPs said, oh, I have a really good relationship. So some MPs and constituencies that have a lot of universities or people who come from an academic background said, oh, yeah, well, I know how to find those experts. Not a lot of them do. Um, so a lot of them said, well, I don't even know, like it's in the, that time challenge, like policies sometimes need to be made really quickly or they need to go to the house really quickly. How do we even find that expert? So that was another challenge that came up as well. Um, a lot of MPs said, 60% of MPs we said, uh, we talked to you said, you know, I sometimes don't know if a piece of information has bias or spin. So it's part of the reason that they said, well, I really like going to the Library of Parliament because I know that they're mandated to provide me with information that is totally unbiased and totally nonpartisan, where a lot of MPs said, well, most of the information that comes across my desk is going to be spun in a way to try and influence my thinking, because that's what, you know, that's what it's like to be a member of parliament. People are trying to get you to give them money. They're trying to get you to make decisions that benefit their groups. So a lot of them said, well, I don't know what to trust. Like, how am I supposed to know what to trust when a lot of the information that comes across my desk is biased? Um, so again, this is why the Library of Parliament was considered to be such a valuable resource because um, it was unfunded information that's privy only to the member. Um, so although a lot of MPs said, well, I love, you know, talking to industry groups, I don't necessarily know that they're unbiased. Um, conflict was another place that came up a lot. So um, MPs sometimes said, you know, it's, it's really challenging to determine whether I should trust a piece of information if it's in, in conflict with either you know, a standing view, or if it conflicts with the needs and views of my party or my constituents. So an example that came up was, um, was, okay, well, I work for a fishing constituency, and I know that there's new technologies that are coming out that would change the face of the fishing industry, that would be better for the environment, that would be better for like long-term economic benefit, but my voters are fisher fishermen. And so how am I supposed to make this decision when I know that it's going to impact my ability to get voted in. So that was that conflict was really challenging. Same way that, you know, if a scientific finding came out that's in direct conflict with what 
the science has been saying. So then he said, well, how am I supposed to make a decision on this? How do I even know if this is good science? And of course, sort of relating to that, politics is just never going to be fully evidence-based. And MPs told us that in a lot of ways. So, you know, they need to consider a lot of factors, not just the science. So, you know, social factors, economics, the existing laws and policies, you know, what's happening in the international plate and in the international factors. So a lot of them said, well, this can get really complicated when a scientist just like brings science to the table and says, well, how am I supposed to use this in a decision? So um, that was another barrier that came up for sure. So thinking about all of these barriers, um, a lot of recommendations came out of these interviews that we put into the report that we're now sort of trying to act on in our work at E4D. Um, so one of them was parliamentary committees. So a lot of MPs said, well, the committee work is where bills get made. It's where we actually like really hash out the, the like evidence that we should be using to integrate into bills. And a lot of them said, well, this is a great place for scientists to come in and work um, and share their, their information. But as a scientist, no one does that. <laughs> There's a very small number of scientists and experts who actually go to parliamentary hearings, um, whereas a lot of people would never even think about that. So that's something that we're actually trying to work on now at E4D is to like, equip scientists with the skills they need to act as a witness on parliamentary committees. Um, we also found that MPs just sort of said, like, part of the problem is that scientists are just really not on the Hill. You know, lobby groups, people who have that sort of political influence. It's not, in Canada, there's, there's laws that, that bar lobby groups from spending a ton of money, but part of it is that they're just on the hill. So a lot of MPs said, you know, experts and people who are invested in science need to get out there and meet with their constituents. And so, you know, if we form better connections and equip the public and the, and the science community to get out there, um, that would be a really good way to sort of get people involved. Um, we also have been working to sort of train members of parliament. So we're working actually with the Library of Parliament. We're working with um, the Carleton training program for members of parliament to give them the skills to be able to find evidence and appraise evidence. Because um, a lot of MPs said that they just didn't have the skills. Um, again, sort of working on those advocacy re relationship building. So not being afraid to reach out to your member of parliament. Um, also training scientists. This is something that we do. So training scientists to communicate their science in a way that's really relevant to policymakers. So, you know, not just publishing your work in a scientific journal and expecting that an MP is going to have the time or energy to read through, really taking into account what an MP said in terms of, you know, relevance and, um, and credibility is something that we're working on to sort of train the community as well. Um, as well as holding policymakers accountable to use evidence. Um, right now, there's not a lot of sort of mechanisms in place to sort of work on that transparency. Um, so this, we're actually moving now into a new research project looking at encouraging the government to be more transparent with the evidence that was actually used to make decisions. So this is based on some work that's happening in the UK where they're using a framework to evaluate how easy it is for the public to actually find and use information. Um, so that's something that with that I think would help as well. Um, as well as resources for research. Um, I think a lot of people really don't know this, but a lot of the MP staff offices are like two people. And sometimes that staffer is, you know, just out of university and is already totally overloaded. So we've been sort of advocating for more research capacity in MP offices as well. So this was a really like interesting study. I feel like we learned a lot from it. Um, we're now using it to really inform our work at evidence for democracy to help with our training program to help our community know how to advocate better for science and really to sort of demystify the process of evidence-based policy at the level of federal government but 
I mean, federal government's not the only government. And so we also wanted to know a little bit about science at the provincial level. So recently, just about a month ago, we published another report looking at um, how well we're doing in the BC government with respect to science integrity. And this is a follow-up of some work that we've done over the past couple of years, but I thought, especially because I'm talking to you in BC, I thought I would bring it to the table because we actually have an active campaign of ways that you can get involved. So I'll, I'll share some of that too. Um, so this is the report that we just put out. So it came out again, like about a, a month ago. I'll, I'll also share it with everyone if you're interested in taking a look. Um, but this report was looking not at the decision makers, but actually at the public servants who are the ones creating evidence. So public sector science is super, super important for evidence-based policy as well. Um, you know, I don't know how many of you know a lot about public sector science and the scientists who work in the government, but scientists in government do a whole bunch of different jobs. Um, everything from, you know, in, in BC, from geology to agronomy to environmental science to, you know, health sciences and, and veterinarians. But they have a huge role to play in terms of safeguarding our natural resources, public health, supporting the economy. Um, and they, they work in a huge variety of disciplines. And in order to, you know, support a strong culture of evidence-based decision-making, it's, it's not just about having strong mechanisms for evidence-based decision-making to sort of find evidence outside of the public service, but we also need strong mechanisms so that the people who are working on science in the government can actually get their expertise into the hands of decision-makers, as well as communicate that work to the public. So when I talk about scientific integrity, what I mean is that there's, there's sort of like a number of pillars that we use when we talk about science integrity. Um, so we need to make sure that um, it, science can be conducted at the highest level and can effectively get into the hands of decision makers. My slides are delaying. One second. So scientific integrity can sort of be talked about in three different layers. So the first being capacity. So you know, does the, the ministry actually have the ability to conduct the research at the highest level? So do they have enough money? Do they have enough people? Do they have enough, um, you know, support to actually do the research? Science also needs to be able to be communicated. So can scientists in the government actually, you know, share their work to the public? Um, are they being muzzled like we were seeing previously at the federal level? Um, and can they also communicate to the media if they were asked? Um, so communication is also critical. And then also we consider independence. So, you know, is that science being conducted without political interference? How effectively is that science actually getting from, you know, the labs or from like the, the body of practice into the hands of decision makers as well as into sort of public um, consumption? So this is what I mean when I talk about science integrity. And the reason that we started looking at this in the BC Public Service is that in recent years, there's been some concern about scientific integrity being at risk in the BC Public Service. And we've actually been involved in the last couple of years in actually assessing this with support of the Professional Employers Association of British Columbia, which is the union that oversees scientists who are working in the provincial government. So um, the reason we undertook this work this year is because in 2017, us, EFRD and um, PEA, worked together to publish this report, Oversight at Risk. And what we did is we conducted a survey of public servants um, working in science in the government, scientific professionals, and we wanted to better understand, you know, how those three pillars of science integrity were actually functioning in the, in the government. And what we found was that there was actually a real risk to concerns about the state of science integrity, um, mostly with regard to capacity for science, but also about concerns with um, support for 
Um, the, the professionals who are working in the government, there's a lot of concerns about outsourcing and a lack of sort of control in terms of independence of that science that was happening in the government. So since then, um, there's actually been a lot of really good things happening in science integrity. Um, so there was a 2018 review of professional reliance, so the reliance of external professionals rather than building internal capacity, um, which led to passage of Bill 49, which is a bill that was meant to protect scientific integrity, scientific um, independence of people who are working as scientific professionals in the BC government, which was all really fantastic. And there's also been a brand new task force that's been sort of tasked to make sure that science capacity is protected, um, which is the group that we were working with to produce this report. Um, um, so the, the task force, and then um, at the federal level um, in 2017, 2018, there was a brand new series of um, scientific integrity policies passed at the federal level, which were really designed to unmezzle scientists. So, so much was happening, you know, both in BC, but also at the federal level with like policies to help scientists be able to communicate their work, to make sure that science was conducted at the highest level. So what we did with our current study was take a look to see if anything has changed since 2017. So how is science integrity actually happening in BC? So we did another survey. Um, so we looked at scientific professionals who are working across sectors in the government to better understand their perceptions of science integrity in their sector. Um, so this is just a clip from the survey. It was sent out to all of the PEA members. We had 323 members respond, which was a statistically significant sample. Um, and we asked them lots of questions on those three pillars with regard to science integrity. Um, we were happy to see that the de demographics were actually really representative. It was mostly from forests um, and rural development, which is actually pretty representative of the science professionals who are working in BC, um, as well as a real diversity of people who had worked, you know, were very new, but also those who had worked in the government for quite a long time. So it was a really good sample. We were pretty happy with the results. Um, so. I'll talk you through each of the pillars. So first we look to see, you know, do they feel like they have the capacity to complete their mandate? So we asked them, you know, if in, with regard to the statement, do you feel that your ministry has enough resources and personnel to actually meet the mandate of your ministry, which obviously is super important. Um, but even with all of these new controls in place, these new bills, these new supports, this big review, we actually saw that almost half said that they somewhat or strongly disagreed with the statement. Um, as compared to about a third who had said that they either strongly or, or, or somewhat agree. So this is not great. So even though we're seeing that there's, you know, improvements with the policies and potentially the awareness of the lack of capacity, where the perception of those who are actually working in science in the government was that they didn't feel that they still can, they, they still don't feel that they are, they have the capacity to complete their mandates. Um, we actually specifically asked them, you know, what has changed since 2017? Do you would you say that there has been a change? And what, the, what we found was that um, a lot of them actually said that there, there has not been a change. It was a little bit split, um, but what we would have wanted to see was that, um, you know, we wanted to see that there was an improvement, but that's not what we heard from the people who took the survey. There's still quite a lot of, of folks who say that there has been not an improvement and actually more than had said increase say that there's actually been a reduction in capacity. So this was not great. And so we wanted to know, you know, what are the challenges with regard to capacity? Um, and it seemed that largely these were relating to hiring policies in the government. So, you know, scientists who were working in the government said that there were hiring delays, shortages of staff, um, lack of both research staff as well as support staff to do the work. Um, as well as this over-reliance on external professionals. So this was the whole professional reliance issue that we had been working on with PEA in the past, 
Um, so rather than building internal capacity, there was concern that that research and sort of expert capacity was being outsourced to those outside of the government, um, as well as other concerns about things like salary. So a lot of the scientists were saying, well, we're just not making it competitive for scientists to want to work in the public service because the salary is not competitive with what you're seeing across North America. So, you know, people might come and work for a while, but they're not incentivized to stay. Um, we also asked questions about communication. So, you know, us having worked quite a lot on muzzling of scientists at the federal level, um, this is obviously something we, can, we were concerned about and something that we saw was a challenge in the first report. So we asked, um, we asked scientists about the ability of them, to, that they, their ability, their perceived ability to present their work to the public. And actually we were pretty happy to see that a lot of the um, scientific professionals said that they do feel comfortable that they can give public presentations or academic presentations on their work with, with um, permission from their supervisors. But this was actually something that we were happy to see, that it doesn't seem like there's a huge issue with public muzzling um, of scientists in the, in the public service, which was great. 75% um, said that they could, you know, 60% you still need permission, but that's still pretty good. Um, we also asked about professional development. So, you know, in terms of creating the best available science in the public service, we need to make sure that science can be conducted at the highest level, which means having training and professional capacity. Um, and this is where there's a, a couple of, of challenges. 42% um, said that they felt that advances in their field were happening at conferences that they couldn't go to. So a lot of these were international conferences. Um, you know, a lot of the time, even though there was, you know, potentially money or time available, um, there was just not a, that, that sort of lack of, of hiring and, and capacity meant that a lot of the time that we could be dedicated to training and professional development had to be used, had, they had to use things like vacation or pay for it on their own, um, or it, it just meant they had to sort of take a little bit more time out of their own schedule. And almost 80% said that they would prefer to have something like an annual stipend um, or time off to let them to sort of stay current in advances in their field. And then this is, I think, probably the most interesting finding. We asked about um, evidence-based policymaking and perceived political interference in um, sort of the evidence-based policymaking process. So we asked the question about whether or not scientific professionals in the government said that they felt um, that their ministry's ability to develop policies, laws, and programs had been compromised by political interference. And what we found was that 43% actually said that they somewhat or strongly agreed, which is not great. It's a little bit worrying. Um, and again, like, I mean, we, we do have a lot of qualitative data on this, which we obviously didn't share for, you know, protection of people's identities. But, you know, this was anything from you know, feeling like there was industry pressures that that changed an outcome or that, you know, softened an outcome or that, um, you know, potentially like there was a challenge about, you know, a member or a minister saying, well, this isn't going to be good for, for like voters. So that political interference can be sort of interpreted in a lot of different ways, but 43% is a really high number. It's not something that we were happy to see for sure. Um, so if we dug a little bit deeper into this, sort of, we asked a lot of questions around what political interference actually looked like. So 25% of the people who answered said that they felt that knowledge, they had knowledge of information being suppressed um, or declined by their ministry, which led to misleading impressions um, by the public industry or government officials. So this is just a quote um, where they felt that key legislation had been changed to the detriment of the public in response to industry pressure. 38% um, of the people that we talked to also said that they felt like they couldn't share their concerns um, with the media or the public. 
So we asked about specifically about whether they felt like a policy was potentially going to be detrimental to the public. Um, but 38% said, well, I don't feel comfortable talking about that because I'm, I'm fearful about retribution or censure, um, which is also not great. Um, so even though there is, you know, nice policies in place for um, communication of science to the public, um, there was this fear of, of sort of whistleblowing or retribution. Um, I mean, this was more a question because we were partnering with the PEA, but 50% agreed um, versus 70% disagreeing that being a part of this union did allow them to speak more freely. So that, that speaks to the power of things like a task force and a, and a union. Um, and maybe not surprisingly, 93% of the, of the folks who took the survey said that they think that the government of British Columbia would benefit from greater government capacity for scientific professionals. So, um, so with the take homes of the study, what we found was that scientific professionals in the government told us that they lack the sufficient resources and capacity to meet their mandates. Um, there are barriers to the use of science and evidence in government decision making and specifically concerns were around lack of capacity, government transparency, access to professional development and training, as well as this perceived political interference. So with these findings, we put together a set of recommendations that we've now, we're now working with the Professional um, Employers Association to bring forward to elected officials and to senior decision makers in the government. So these meetings are ongoing, um, but these recommendations sort of fall into the three pools. Um, the first all on capacity, all of our recommendations are on improving hiring practices and supporting employers, or so supporting employees, I'm sorry. So the, um, this includes new policies to reduce vacancies, um, succession planning. So, you know, when someone leaves, making sure that there's someone there to take the place. Um, this is something that a lot of people said was a big problem. Um, improving competitiveness through increased salaries and benefits and training, as well as career laddering. Right now, a lot of scientists who are working in the government, there's just not a clear way of the, for them to grow in advance. Um, so this is something that actually is sort of in progress. I know that the, the task force is working on this. So making it easier for high level professionals to want to work in the government. Uh, in terms of communication, um, based on the recommendations uh, that we heard from professionals, you know, putting in place time off and development funding to make sure that the scientists who are working in the government can actually have access to the training that they need to make science the best that it possibly can be in our public service. And I would say that this is probably the case in not just BC, but across public services um, all over Canada, um, as well as science communication policies. So. Um, like I was mentioning before, um, the federal government has now implemented new policies for scientific integrity, which is more, it, it's a wide ranging policy. I'm happy to share them if they're of interest to anyone, um, but it'll, it allows scientists very clear policies with respect to talking to the media, with respect to communicating their work to the public and how they are um, recognized for their work as well. So having similar policies in place would, in the provincial governments would be really fantastic. So that's something that we would love to work on more actively. Um, again, sort of this, this integrity policies wouldn't just be about science communication, but they would also integrate in really clear protocols with respect to how um, evidence is actually used in government decisions. So what we found is that a lot of the professionals said, I do feel like I'm being called upon to bring my science to the table and I do get a chance to communicate it, but it gets really cloudy because I don't know how it's used in the final decision making. So having clearer policies in place to actually understand how evidence comes from you know, the lab into the final decision would be really useful. Um, and then also sort of based upon ongoing recommendations, clearer policies with respect to oversight of external professionals to make sure that you know, the use of those external professionals isn't compromising um, the ability of, of science to be conducted at a high level and used in, in government decisions. 
So these were our recommendations. So like I said, we're working now with the Professional Employers Association to support them in their government relations. They have a lot of meetings upcoming with elected officials. This has been ongoing for a while now. But then we also have a lot of tools that you as members of the public, if this is something that you're interested in, can also do to get involved. Um, so obviously in, in light of COVID-19, especially in BC where you know, things are, are changing really rapidly. It's obvious that we need, um, you know, very clear mechanisms in place to make sure that science can get into our decision-making and not just now, um, but into the future as well. Um, and we do need to continue to make sure that science is, is supported and prioritized. And so as members of the public, we can help connect these results to our elected officials. So we've created a tool to help you do this. Um, I'm actually not gonna go through the demonstration because I'm not sure if it will work um, through here, but I'm happy to share this with you after the talk if it's of interest. So on our website where we have posted this report, we also have a tool where you can actually um, sort of click, put in your name, put in your postal code, and you can write to your local MP to relay the results of this report and also stress the importance of having strong public sector science and evidence-informed policy. So the form actually includes a sort of Pre-filled letter, if it's you know, something that you don't feel comfortable writing yourself, we've written it for you. Um, you can just put in your name and postal code and it'll send uh, the letter to your MLA. But you can also change it if it's something that you want to um, modify or, or sort of stress in a different way. So I'm happy to share that, that tool with you after the, my chat as well. Um, and then we also have, uh, so yeah, also on the, on the same campaign page, there's also a series of social media graphics that you can use if you're a user of social media to share some of the results finding results and findings as well as some of the sort of key recommendations as well. And then more broadly, um, so we also, like I mentioned, we do this research, we develop campaigns, we work with government, but we also have a whole suite of training tools on our website, um, in our training section of the website, everything from webinars. So all of these on the left are webinars that we've done in the past little while. So we did a webinar on the findings of this report, but we also did a webinar on our election campaign, on combating misinformation, um, on how to submit feedback to federal budget processes, how to write briefing notes. Um, so anything from you know, understanding policy to understanding how to communicate to decision makers. We also have a number of like downloadable toolkits. So these are all webinars, but we have tons of PDFs and resources. So this is just an example of one on how to connect with your political representatives, how to find them, how to set up a meeting. Um, then we also have a lot of ca campaigns. So for example, we we've done, been doing a lot of work on combating misinformation recently. Um, so this is our Truth Pledge campaign, which you can sign on to sort of doing, committing to doing your part to produce, reducing the spread of misinformation, which also gives you access to our toolkits and training on misinformation. And then to give you a little bit of a teaser, we have an upcoming campaign that we'll be launching in just a couple of weeks on promoting um, support for science advice in the government through new funding and new mandate for the chief science advisor, as well as some upcoming research on misinformation. So if you're interested in learning more about how to take part, um, you can access all of these tools for free on our website, and um, we're also totally happy to um, help support anyone who has individual issues or, you know, things that they want to do to sort of take part in their own circles as well. So I'll leave it at that. Um, it's a lot of information, but I'm happy to take questions, um, whether that's about the work that we did or sort of about E4D generally or, or science policy generally. Um, I'll, I'll leave it open to you guys. 
Great. Thank you so much, Kim. That was really great. Um, so as you said, we have a couple of minutes for questions here. Um, so I'll be keeping a speakers list. Uh, so just raise your hand with the little raise hand button or uh, comment something in the chat. Um, and I will kind of moderate whose question is next. And out of respect for everyone who is watching and wanting to ask questions, please keep your questions succinct and under a minute after which, unfortunately, I would have to cut you off. Um, all right, who has questions? I also can't see the chat, Emily, so if oh. you, um, yeah. I can see the chat, I think. So if you want to read me any questions, that would be great. I don't know why I can't see it. I could before, but now I cannot. There is always a little bit of a delay where people are it is. ruminating on their questions for a minute here. Yeah. But yeah, again, uh, the raise hand button should be at the bottom of the screen. Um, and then the chat is, if you move your mouse, um, there's a little button that says chat. You just click on that and you can type in a little chat bubble um, and that'll pop up for them. Okay. Um, oops. Interesting. So it looks like I'm gonna try to see if I can find the raise hand button because I don't see it either. Uh, thank you for commenting that. In the meantime, if you do have questions, uh, just enter them in the chat for now while I work out the technical issues of the raise hand button. Um, lower all hands. I also can't see how to change it. Um, but I guess maybe, I mean, maybe if people have chats, they can, it's in the participant list. That's what I thought, it's in the participant list. Allow participants to unmute themselves. Oh, do you maybe have to allow them? Oh, there you go. I can see raised hands. It's just in the participants list. I know. I just see that somebody raised a hand. Okay, sorry. Oh, I see that people. I guess. I guess what they're saying is that. Um, oh, Ian is saying that in the participants list, if you open up the participants box, you should be able to raise your hand from the participants list. Okay. At the three dots. All right. Thanks so much. <laughs> Interpreting through chat. <laughs> so after five months, there's still challenges with te technical. <laughs> so I'm sorry, I'm like fully backlit. It's dark here now. So <laughs> lucky I have a window right in front of me. Yeah, well, I do too, but it's nighttime. Oh, right. <laughs> <Time> difference. <laughs> yeah. Oh, maybe people don't have questions. That's also okay. Hopefully people don't have questions and are unable to answer them. I would feel very bad. Um, oh, there's a question from Martin. Um, so anyone who doesn't have the chat open, I'll just read it for you. So how often do politicians, not government employees, ask staff to go out and get good evidence-based knowledge on something that they may or may not have already have policy on? It's a good question. And I mean, I think that that is something that would really vary from person to person. So, you know, based on our talks with MPs, there were some of the MPs that we talked to who were really, really dedicated to finding, you know, science and research. So one of the MPs, I'm, I'm sort of thinking about one of them in particular said, you know, it really matters to me that I have the best available evidence and I'm going to task my team to go out and actually find that. And it meant that they felt pretty comfortable, you know, calling up researchers or going and meeting individuals 
Um, we had other MPs, one of the MPs said that they were working on housing issues and they felt like there was a gap in evidence relating to what they wanted to answer in their work. And they actually partnered with the university in the area to find evidence. But again, I think that this is probably more of an exception than the rule. Um, whereas I think that the challenge that a lot of MPs told us was that, you know, they're already receiving so much information that going out and seeking new information is a lot less sort of desirable. So this is another example of where I think that it's really important that if you're worried about lack of evidence on a particular topic, don't just assume that an elected official is going to go find that information because their capacity is so limited that sometimes you need to like put it in front of them. Mm -hmm. um, kind of going off of that question, we have another one. Uh, how has COVID affected the use of evidence in policy? Super good question and something I've been thinking about a lot. Um, I would say that I've been pleasantly surprised um, overall in Canada, that I think that Canada has made it clear from the beginning that they want to make it clear to the public that they're making their decisions based on evidence. We've seen this through, you know, some really cool steps that the government has taken. So I think that, for example, like in British Columbia, having Bonnie Henry, a public health official, someone who has expertise in the topic, being the voice of the government sort of to help sort of show that these, these decisions are being made um, using the best available evidence. I mean, at the federal level, we've heard Trudeau say many, many times, you know, we're using the best available science. There's been new investments in science and research, which is fantastic. Um, the chief science advisor has also taken some really cool steps. Um, her office has really stepped up to the plate. She put together um, an immunity task force to sort of understand serological testing across Canada, um, as well as assembling expert panels across Canada. And the really cool, things that I think in any other time would have been like impossible to try and push for. So something that we've been working on a lot has been pushing for open science and, and better collaboration on science. And there's this very cool new platform that the chief science advisor and the departmental science advisors in Canada put together called CanCOVID, um, which is a Slack channel, which is like a digital tool that scientists can actually communicate on and share protocols, share research, share ideas. Um, so it's really cool. Like, I feel like it's pushed forward um, protocols for evidence-based policy that have been really hard to push for in the past. Um, that said, I mean, I, I worry that that won't necessarily continue once things go back to normal. Um, but I think that it's a really good way for advocacy groups like ours and the public to say, look, we've seen you you know, raise the voices of, of scientific experts and connect with the scientific community in really effective ways. Let's, let's keep that motivation going. Um, and I think it's also sort of helpful and horrible to have a very clear example in the States of what happens when you don't follow the advice of experts. So I think it's putting the pressure on our governments, which is good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I did see someone's hand go up temporarily and then it went back down again. So um, just to like eliminate the whole raised hand fiasco, maybe just type hand in the chat if you want to like speak your question and then I can unmute you and also puts you on the list. Um, so our next question is from Ellen and she asks, as a constituent who believes in participatory democracy, I contact my political representatives regularly. I would also like to give them scientific information to back up my communication. Am I correct in thinking that they would benefit from my sending them links to scientific sources? Absolutely. So one of the things we heard from MPs is that they want people to connect, connect with them when they want, when they need to use science. So they, a lot of them said, except for one, which was a weird exception, 
all of them said, I want more people like bringing science to me because it's hard for me to like sort of get through that. But another thing that they said was, I really like knowing the sources of information. So it, I think that it's really important to actually show where information is coming from. So it's not, it's one thing which is fantastic to be reaching out to your political representatives. And I think it's something that more of us need to do. Um, and remember that our political elected officials are there to represent us and listen to us. Um, but I also think that it's important that when you're bringing things to the table, definitely send them links to scientific sources. A lot of MPs said, I didn't even know about this until it came across my desk and, and you know, someone brought it to the table. Um, and it's also important not only because you're bringing them information that they might you know, really benefit from, you're showing it where it came from, but you're also you know, creating an, an ongoing relationship. Um, and if you're bringing them stuff that they, they trust, that, that relationship is really important. So yes, I definitely would say that sending them links. Um, but I would also sort of preface that by saying, if you can summarize that, in a way, um, so if, for example, like sure, like showing them the link, a lot of MPs said, I'll follow that link, but also like summarizing it into a point form of saying like, hey, this is what I'm sending you. This is why you should care about it is also important to make sure that it doesn't just get passed off. And we have a lot of tools on that um, sort of communicating to policymakers if you're interested in learning more. All right, our next question is, how do you feel the government's ability to adequately refute misguided science notions among the, pub the public? Oh, that's a hard question and something that we think about a lot. Um, I mean, I think that I've been, I've been happy to see there have been some initiatives coming out of the government. I mean, I'm speaking at the federal level because I'm in Ottawa and that's really where we work a lot of the time, but there have been some initiatives coming out that show that the government cares about trying to help people better understand misinformation. So, for example, Heritage Canada got a bunch of money last year to fund initiatives that are trying to build digital citizenship. So this is really coming from concerns around democracy and misinformation, sort of fake news impacting democratic processes. But since COVID, there was actually a, a new call of government funding to try and support groups that are helping to combat misinformation. So it's good to see that there's been some investments, but I don't know that there have been a lot of like very clear steps that the government has taken to sort of combat misinformation. However, I do think that at the provincial levels and municipal levels, I've seen governments do really cool stuff. So Ottawa Provincial Health has been super awesome. And so I know that Bonnie Henry has also done super great like comms to the public to sort of help myth bust around COVID-19, for example. Um, but the problem is really in trust, right? So one of the challenges that we encounter, so we've been doing a lot of work around misinformation and, and development of tools for our community on how to recognize and respond to misinformation. But a lot of the problems around misinformation, especially now, are that people feel that they don't trust the government. And so if the, it's the government who's saying, hey, no, this is actually not good information, then that, that can be problematic. Um, but I do think that there could be more. Like I think that that our elected officials need to like take an action and like promoting the best available science. And it's great to see people like Bonnie Henry and like our Teresa Tam and our our experts who are really taking an active role in providing tools. Um, I also was having a conversation with someone um, just today actually about how this has been such a great example for those of us who work in science policy and science communication to really get scientists involved in showing the public that, you know, science is an iterative process. So just because, you know, science at the beginning of the pandemic said, you know, oh, we probably don't need masks or the virus is transmitted this way. Now we know different things. 
Um, at first, we got a lot of feedback from our community saying, well, how are we supposed to trust these sources or how am I supposed to trust scientists that they're telling me one thing and then telling me a different thing later? But it's a really good opportunity for the science community to get involved and to take action saying, you know, just because something was, was right here doesn't mean that it's going to be right here because science is iterative, because it's always about updating our information, which is a really important part of fighting back against misinformation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Ellen asks, vaccine education will be an important priority for the government next, right? I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. Um, I've been sort of talking to the science policy community about what our predictions are with regard to vaccine hesitancy, because I mean, I'm sure many of you are aware we've been seeing troubling trends and increasing vaccine hesitancy, even in very urban centers of Canada. I think it was just like last February that Toronto had it's like 30%, they're almost 30% of polled people said that they were hesitant about vaccines, which is really problematic. Um, but I wonder now if COVID-19 is gonna spark some conversation that might actually decrease that, but it's hard to say. Um, maybe a teaser for stuff that we're doing. Um, we have a whole series now on, so we've been sort of working around um, what we call the inoculation method um, in combating misinformation, which is rather than trying to fact check everything you see online, giving people a, a heads up that they might see misinformation on a particular topic, um, and then giving them the tools to have informed conversations about those topics. So we've been creating infographics on areas where there's a lot of misinformation. So we have one on climate change, we have one on the opioid crisis, but we have an upcoming one on COVID-19 vaccines. So we're trying to do our part um, in having conversations around misinformation and vaccines, but I do hope that the government really works on vaccine education, because I think that this is the time. <laughs> Do you mind if I ask, has there been any work done by Evidence for Democracy on uh, misinformation literacy in the government? So MPs being able to know the difference between like news sources or things they look up on the internet being true or false? Yeah, I mean, this is one of the things that we're really trying to get out of the, the study that we did with members of parliament, um, because what we, what we saw is that, and, and there's a really great report, which um, I can also send around and we, we've done one on how many MPs actually have science literacy with regard to like a background in research or, or sciences. It's quite low. And, and I, don't think, I don't think it's necessary. Like, I don't think that that's something that we need to expect our elected officials to have, but they do need tools and supports. So we have been trying to do that. So we actually have a couple of training events that we have planned in the fall for parliamentarians and for their staff. And then we also are hoping to partner with two really cool programs. One is the MP orientation program at Carleton University and one is um, Science Meets Parliament, which is about getting science and scientists into the house. So not actively right now, but something that we're, we're working on. Okay, very cool. Um, so Wendy and Daryl ask, uh, has there been an improvement since the liberal government came to power? The Harper government seemed to suppress science. For sure. So a bit of a story of how E4D came to be was that we, so our executive director, so I'm, I'm actually the research and policy director, but our actual executive director, who I'm filling in for this year, um, founded the organization because of the anti-science movement during the Harper days. So it started off as a protest led by scientists in the science community that actually formed the organization because scientists in the science community were so riled up and so frustrated by the Harper government that they really needed a place to put that. And that's how E4D actually came into existence. Um, so the original goal of E4D was really to 
create a, to push for a government that actually cared about science because the Harper government had cut science whereas modeling scientists was, you know, had shown this huge suppression of science in the government. Um, and since then, honestly, so much has, so much has changed. And I can say this both as someone we're at E4D and someone who has worked in the government in science policy. So some of the examples that we've seen, um, I mean, the Trudeau government actually ran on a platform of muzzling, unmuzzling scientists, which was so great. Um, but I mean, that's not to say, so we are a totally nonpartisan organization and there's still lots of things that the government could be doing better. Um, but there have been huge investments in fundamental research, um, the scientific, scientific integrity policies in the government were the policies that were meant to unmuzzle scientists. So now there's actual policy in place to make sure that scientists can um, speak about their work and aren't suppressed. Um, there's a new chief science advisor who her role is to promote um, science, to provide evidence to the prime minister and to the minister who oversees science. Um, at the very beginning of the Trudeau government, there was actually a whole minister of science, which no longer exists, which is kind of problematic. Um, so yeah, I would say that things are a lot better now, um, but that's not to say that there aren't, you know, ways that we could be doing better. Like, I think that there's still a lot of things that we need to be supporting. And I mean, that's what our job is as E4D, to be consistently holding the feet to the fire of our governments in terms of how could we be doing better in, in terms of evidence-based policy. Um, and because of that, we have a really strong relationship across parties. Um, and with government departments, um, because I think it's important to be consistently pushing and consistently um, hoping to improve. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so Susan asks, if your MP slash MLA is terrific and several steps ahead of you, how does one get to add to their force when communicating with other representatives or staff from a non-party partisan position? Okay, I'm just gonna read this question again, hold on. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it's awesome if you have a great MLA. Um, I mean, there's a couple of different ways that sort of I can think about. Um, I mean, I mean, part of it, like it, there's there's ways you can get potentially like, you know, involved with your MLA and like do some volunteering and like ask them how to sort of get more involved in like public advocacy. Um, sometimes, using other tools rather than like specifically meeting with elected representatives to spread a word for further. So for example, like using an op-ed or highlighting some of the work that your MP has been doing within your communities um, is really awesome. Um, you can also sort of reach out to your, your constituency office and say like, hey, I think that the work you're doing is really amazing. How can I support the work that you're doing? You know, are there ways that I can volunteer? Are there resources? Um, in terms of like, you know, working from a, uh, sorry, hold on, I'm just looking, other representatives have from a non-party partisan position. Yeah, you can also like, I mean, there's, there's lots of different ways that you can advocate too by like communicating with folks who are like working in the government. Um, I think a lot of people think that your, your only means of, of advocacy and working on political issues is by going directly to, um, you know, your, your member of parliament. But one of the things that we highlight in our report is that there's so many moving parts with regard to how policy actually works that sometimes it's about finding the, the pain point. So I do a workshop through E4D on how to do effective advocacy, um, which I can probably link to some resources if you're interested. Um, but it's not just about, you know, going to your MP. Sometimes it's about finding who has the power to actually make the change that you're, you're trying to see. So an example that I can think about um, that we worked on at E4D was we were working on an issue relating to cuts to climate science in Canada. And we originally went to the Minister of Science, 
But the Minister of Science said, actually, no, this is a Minister of Environment issue. So they shuffled us over to Minister of Environment. And the Minister of Environment said, actually, no, this is an issue within the executive branch of government. And it took a lot of digging and sort of finding out where that pain point was. And once we had that, we could have effective conversations with the right person. So, you know, it's awesome that you have someone on board and you can use that to your ability or to your power to say like, look, we have support from this really powerful person. Um, so sometimes it's just about finding where that pain point is and, and really use those, those connections to your advantage, which is what we did in that case. Like we found that um, the prime minister's office, so Gerald Butts was actually really in support of this work, same with a couple of MPs. So we, we were able, able to show like, look, these powerful people are, um, are invested in this. Like, why aren't you? Um, and then a follow-up question to that asked by Ola is, uh, what if your MP slash MLA does not think science matters? What can you do? Yeah, this happens all the time. Um, so sometimes it's because, sometimes it's not that they don't think that, that science matters. Sometimes it's that, you know, a particular issue is really challenging. So what I would recommend is, um, so think about who, find out about who they are. So, you know, what issues do they care about? What is their position? You know, why is it that they're suppressing science? So if we look back at Harper, you know, the major issue about science suppression was because, you know, the environmental scientists were saying, you know, we can't be investing in the oil fields, but that wasn't really economically beneficial. And so that was a real problem. And that was where a disconnect was. So sometimes it's about learning why there's a challenge and where that barrier is and communicating your needs in a way that appeals to that decision maker. So, you know, understanding what they're trying to achieve and trying to fit your asks into the context of something that they're going to care about. So that can be a really effective way. Um, sometimes it's about, you know, finding out what might be threatening to them, which it doesn't, it sounds wrong when I say it that way. But so for example, you know, saying, Hey, look, like this is a really powerful body of voters these scientists who all really care about this thing and like you aren't showing support for this thing. And so if you don't show support for this scientific evidence, you might lose this body of voters. That can be really powerful as well. So actually framing it in the context of like, if you don't care about this, this is what could happen. Um, sometimes you're just not gonna get them to care about a particular issue. Um, so I, I always consider that this is like the inside approach. So if you're trying to bring something to the table, um, you know, going to the inside, scoop to say like, hey, you should care about the science issue. I'm going to give you a chance to think about it and maybe take an action before I make this a big stink in the public can be really powerful, but sometimes you're just not going to get feedback. So another thing that you can do is be more public about it and be like, hey, look, my MLA isn't caring about the science and like, this is a big deal. Get more people behind you. And then once you have more people behind you, you can use that power to say, look at all these people who are behind you who are going to potentially not vote for you. That can be really powerful. So I think it's also important to remember that like these, this kind of advocacy can take time and, um, you know, don't be discouraged if you don't get support for things that you're pushing with regard to science. Um, and sometimes it takes years and sometimes you need to enlist the support of people who are like working in the space like us. Um, but yeah, so I would say start, start on their level, try and get on their level, try and communicate in a way that they care about. And if they don't care, then you can try other, other approaches. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really important way of uh, going about it. What would you say is the like best way of communicating with a constituency office? Because um, I know a lot of the time if you send a letter that is like written as like a group form letter, maybe it won't always reach most effectively. 
Yeah. Um, don't be afraid to like use multiple, multiple forums. I always feel like I, I did at first feel really silly. Like if I was trying to get in touch with an elected official, um, being like, okay, I'm going to send a letter, I'm going to send an email, and then I'm going to phone to follow up a couple of days later. Um, it feels insane, but you have to remember that a lot of the time these offices just get so much information. And it's been multiple times that I've like sent. So even thinking about the invitations that I had sent to MPs to participate in the interviews, I sent a letter, like an actual physical letter, then I sent an email. And then two days later, I phoned and said, hey, I just want to let you know, I sent you a letter. I was wondering if you received it. Um, and sometimes they were like, oh yeah, for sure. I'll, you know, follow up with me later. And then don't be afraid to phone again. Cause most of the time it's because it like just completely didn't happen. Um, so if you're trying to like set up a meeting, that's what I would recommend. Um, I would say phone is probably like the best way because you're most likely to reach a human being and, um, they can sort of direct you into what's happening. And sometimes it's like, you know, you sent an email at the wrong time. So so paying attention to stuff like, you know, is the house, if you're, if it's an MP or like even, even, you know, the, the provincial governments, like, are they in session? Is there something big happening that might mean that things sort of fall off the radar, but phoning the, the office can be a really good tool to be like, Hey, what would be a good time that I can sort of chat about this? Is there time for me to set up a meeting? You know, where can I find information? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think we have time for one or two more questions. Uh, we don't have any new questions right now in the chat. I'll give it another minute or two because I know it takes some time to type them out. Um, but yeah, is there anything else you wanted to, you felt it was important to mention today, Kim? Um, you know, kind of on the topic of all of this? Um, I mean, I think that this is a really important time for us to be emphasizing how important evidence-based decision-making is. And I mean, we have been fighting this fight for a long time, but I think it's so obvious now how important it is that we support science and that we have governments that care about science and can find it and use it effectively. So I think that if it's something that you care about, this is a really good time to do that kind of advocacy because there's just such a clear example of why it matters. And, and so, yeah, like, I think that that would be my, um, my sort of take home and and also like, I mean, regardless of whether it's science or, or it's something that you care about, I would, I always encourage people to not be nervous about voicing your concerns with your elected officials. Um, because I think that people forget that we elect them so that they can represent us. And every MP I talked to said, I love talking to my constituents and I love knowing what they care about. So, you know, don't be afraid to, to do that and to make those relationships because relationships really matter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. Um, so seeing no further questions, uh, thank you so much for joining us today and presenting like such an important issue. Um, and thank you to everyone who joined us uh, to watch um, and for asking such great questions. Uh, I assume, Kim, um, for all the resources that you talked about, would you be able to like maybe post them on Facebook? Uh, yeah. Maybe like um, we shared the event page, uh, so maybe like on there. Sure. Um, but yeah. Uh, so yeah, thank you everyone for joining us tonight. Um, thank you much for having me too. Yeah, of course. Um, and we'll hopefully see you at our next event two weeks from now. Yeah, for sure. I wish I could come and visit, but until, <laughs> until COVID. Yeah, we're all locked in here, but... <laughs> Till then, <laughs> stay safe and healthy, people. All right, bye. <laughs>